Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, I interview Michelle Murphy. Michelle turned to drugs and alcohol at a young age to cope with the pain of her childhood and found herself deep in the grips of codependency. Her recovery from drugs and alcohol ended up being her gateway to healing. She found sobriety at age 18, but life didn't immediately turn around the way she thought it would. As you'll hear Michelle say in her interview, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're well. She has had so many different life experiences since then, and she shares how she's been able to stay sober through them all. She has a beautiful daughter named Scarlett, two dogs, and is now engaged to the love of her life. She also owns a virtual long-term post-discharge company that offers a comprehensive aftercare program called Modern Recovery. She loves to teach and practice yoga, and she owns a yoga studio in Mesa, Arizona called Exhale Yoga. All right, episode 34, let's do this. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is super fun. We have a lot of uh, similar friends in common from the recovery world. And uh, so our our stories have overlap, which is always fun. Yeah. So where, where do you live right now? I live in Mesa, Arizona. Okay. So I ask that because you've lived a lot of different places. Yeah. Um, a lot. <laughs> a, a lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Um, a lot. Where, how long are you sober? I actually just celebrated 20 years last Friday. Stop. Yeah. So you're not old enough to have 20 years. I know. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. And my husband just celebrated 17 years two days ago and I'm, I'm starting to freak out because like our friend group is starting to celebrate like decades, (laughs) decades, decades. We we shouldn't be old enough to celebrate decades. And when I first got sober, people would, um, people would be like, Oh, you're not old enough to be sober. And I would be so offended by it. I was like embarrassed. And now people are like, Oh my gosh, what age did you get sober? And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. I feel like I look so young and yeah. Uh, Three. Yeah. I'll take it. Now. Yeah. Right. In my early days, I was so offended. Oh, I remember that too. I remember thinking, um, cause I got sober at 19. How old are you? I was 18. 18. Okay. So I got sober at 19 and I remember thinking, do you know how bad it has to get in order for a 19 year old, 18 year old to want to stop drinking and using? Like, do you have any idea how horrible things yeah. have to be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are resilient. We'll push through anything. And we wanted to get sober. So that tells you something in your life that, yeah, you feel like your life is over like immediately. Right. When I got sober, I was like, it's all over. Oh, it's done. It's done. Yeah. Were you like, one of my big things about getting sober at that age was like, okay, so I guess the rest of life is going to be really horrible and not fun and not sexy and not cool. So I've just resigned to that. Oh, absolutely. I was like, how do you go to college sober? Oh yeah. How do you get married sober? Mm-hmm. Like that was my biggest reservation. I was like, I'll give this thing a try. But when I get married, because I'm so codependent, that's what I was focused oh on. When I get married, I'm definitely going to drink because okay, you can't so- have a wedding sober. Okay. So we are kindred spirits because that was my <laughs> biggest concern. If you, I, I, It's in some of the podcasts. That was my biggest, Christina is laughing. That was my mm-hmm. biggest concern. And this is what my sponsor said to me. I was like, well, how am I supposed to get married sober? How, what am I going to mm-hmm. do at my wedding? Like yep. everyone's going to be toasting. Blah, blah, yep. blah. And she, she goes, do you have someone who wants to marry you right now? 
And I'm like, she's like, why don't you worry about that when someone actually wants to marry you? I was like, I feel like there's five people that want to marry me. They just don't know yet. Right. Uh, Like they haven't asked me, nor are we dating. Yeah. It's in my head. I'm visualizing it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm manifesting this right now. Irony is I had, when I did my first marriage, I got, I did get married to somebody sober. He was sober at the time and his whole family is sober too. Like (laughs) dad is a circuit speaker. Yeah. Like 35 years I, we had a 400 person dry wedding. Yep. Yep. And, and, and the, the alcoholics were tailgating in the parking lot. Yeah. It was, it was hysterical. And I was like, Oh, here I am sober with a dry wedding. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah, We we didn't have a dry wedding, but I remember being with the planner and they were talking about a signature cocktail. Cause they were, cause the, my mom and dad had all their friends, you know, it's, it's like your wedding ends up being for your family apparently. And so they were talking about a signature cocktail. And I remember thinking like, so you're only going to let people choose between three alcohols? <laughs> Man, I'm so glad I'm not drinking yeah, right now because they're sure. making that choice. For, and you get cut off. Oh my God. I was like, wow. All right. Well, I guess I didn't need to drink at my wedding. Yeah. Me neither. Me neither. Who knew? I was Who like, knew? this is a miracle. Yeah. Here I am. In our biggest concern. That was my biggest concern. I know. It's like, know. how am I going to do that? I love that someone else shared that because I yeah. was like, this is a real showstopper for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I recognize I'm dying, but honestly, what am I supposed to do yeah. at this juncture? Like you can't do that. You can't no. get married sober. And I did. And it was, yeah. You got sober at 18. Uh, I did. Where did you grow up? I grew up I don't know. Where am I? I know. Where okay. I start. Okay. So, um, okay. So if somebody was to ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from New York. Okay. So I was born and raised in the early years of my life in New York, um, on Long Island. Um, my family still, a majority of my family still lives there and summers I would go and stay with my grandparents in New York. So that okay. is like okay. my home like the closest. Yeah. That's the, if I felt at yeah. home, so anywhere, um, would be New York. Okay. So I grew up there but I've lived in 10 different States at this point, all over the place. So, okay. So you're, you grew up in New York, your mom had you super young, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she had me when she was of- 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is probably not like super young at the time. Cause I'm pretty sure all my grandparents were 20, but now it's pretty much infant, infanthood. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, all of her friends got pregnant at the same time. They were all 20. (laughs) Unfortunately, my mom was 20. Uh, she was in college actually, ironically at ASU. She lived in New York. She went to ASU. She flew home for, I mean, this is my mom's story, but we'll tell it. Um, she flew home for, to New York and hooked up with somebody on summer vacation. It came back and she was pregnant with me. So she realized she went to ASU's health clinic and they were like, you're not sick, you're pregnant. At that point, she flew back to New York, moved back to New York. And that's, I was born in New York. And dad, what's, was dad around? No, dad was not around. I think he was around for the first maybe three or four months. Um, After that, they did divorce. They even got married. They, they did everything very quickly. They hooked up. Yeah. They had a baby. They got married and divorced all within a year. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, Pamela Anderson would be proud. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a whirlwind. I can't, I mean, thinking about me being a year sober at the age of 20, I don't, I don't 
that's a whole undertaking. I, that I wouldn't have been through. able to figure out how to divorce, let no. alone like, where do you go? The no. paperwork, yeah. like I, I was brain fog. Yeah. And I think my grandparents made them get married, right. really pushed for that. I have never had a relationship with my biological father. He didn't stay in the picture. Um, Did you, have he, you met him? You know what? I met him one time um, when I was seven years old. I went to therapy. My I'll get there. My mom, my mom is a therapist. Um, my mom is <laughs> naturally believes in a lot of therapy. So I was, I was a perfect poster child for therapy. I had this like young mom and she was a therapist and then I had no dad and we were moving oh, yeah. all the time. And she was like, you need therapy. And I'm like, I'm not really the problem here. And I knew that <laughs> like, at a really young age, like I'm going to therapy because you can't stop moving. And pulling this inconsistent lifestyle away from me or creating this inconsistent lifestyle. So I went to therapy when I was seven. I was really mad at my mom. And I told the therapist that I wanted to go live with my dad. I'd never met him um, at this point. I mean, maybe like between the ages of birth to one. So the therapist told her to call my bluff and we were living in Virginia at the time. And she said, call her bluff, take her to New York and have her meet her dad. And it was probably one of the most traumatic experiences I've ever had. Oh no. Um, Why? Because it was not what I expected. He was, and you not that this seven. Was I was seven and I yeah. had this idealized picture of my dad. Like he had been waiting for me, like waiting mm. for my mom to bring me back. Right. Um, and he like, clearly smoked and drank and did a, did some drugs because his teeth were kind of rotted. Not that this is bad at all, but he was like an, a New York City junior high janitor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he was very not motivated. He wasn't engaged with me. So I go and I meet him. Not like a Matt Damon janitor. No, 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 not at, <laughs> no, no, no. And and I just remember feeling so uncomfortable. We went to an IHOP. So she left you with him? No, we all three of us went all to the three. IHOP. Okay. Okay. And okay. this was the part that was like very sad for me. Um, we go to the IHOP and we sit there and we're, we're talking. And he talked to my mom the entire time. Like he didn't talk to me. And this, is, this was like the theme of my life already. Like my mom always had a lot of boyfriends and we were kind of always chasing these men. And I was like, here I am meeting my dad for the first time. And she's just they're just talking, you know, like it's about her in this moment. And it was really, really tough. We, we went, I, my mom still says that was a terrible idea. She should have never done that. She was young though. She was like, what, 27 at the time. I mean, she was taking the advice of another therapist and it just was a bad deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of thing I think you would do in, in your, like if, if you were 15, Mm-hmm. you know, seven, yeah. seven, maybe not so much, Yeah, but, um, but yeah, that's, um, that, that definitely, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff around and I don't have this experience. Um, but I, I know lots of people where stuff around what the picture in people's heads and children's heads of their biological parent is. And then when that reality meets, you know, the fantasy and what Mm -hmm. happens there. And I wonder, um, like from your experience, do you think that you would have been better off if you had always just had the fantasy? Or do you think that at some point you needed that reality check? Or what do you think about that? You know, it's a really good question. A lot of people have often asked me like, why don't you try to have a relationship with him now? Or why couldn't you? And I'm so grateful I got it young. Because 
it's not that I'm scared and it's not, it's kind of like, why am I go, why am I going to go somewhere where I'm not invited? Do you right. know what I mean? Totally. Like, it's a terrible I, feeling. I spend a lot of my life, like in my codependency, chasing that same sensation, that sensation of abandonment. Yes. Right. Yes. And at some point I need to come to terms with like, how do I start giving myself those things instead of ner- getting the, and it's going to be the same thing. If I go seek this man out who, if he wanted a relationship, he would be able to find me very easily. I'm glad I had it young and I'm grateful because I watch a lot of people get forced to have biological parents in their lives that are super destructive. And I don't have that experience. Like I don't actually, and that was a pro, a, a big problem when I was growing up because my mom was like, Oh, your dad's not around. Your dad's not around. And I was like, I don't actually feel sad about it. Yeah. Like you're you projecting, yeah. yeah, you're projecting your healthy, great relationship with your father. Right. And you're sad that I don't have that, but I actually don't know what I'm missing out on. Right. Like it's not, it's right. not in, in the forefront of my brain because I've never experienced it. So I, it would be really confusing. Cause I would be like, should I feel sad about it? Um, right, because I right. don't, right. I don't know what I'm missing. I, I, I don't have a vantage point here. So I'm really grateful because I don't, yes, I struggle immensely when I feel like I'm being abandoned. Like I do, I, it really scares me because they don't come, people in my life don't come back. Right. Like they just don't. And that's okay. And I've had to work through that sensation but if he would have stayed in my life or if I would have tried to learn later on, or I had this grandiose idea of who this man was that really desperately wanted to have this relationship with me, I feel like it would have affected me way worse in areas that I wasn't affected in. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, totally. Totally. It's, um, it's a useful, helpful perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your mom, you know, we, I love that codependency, um, is a big part of your story. Cause I think it's so, common when we get sober, this piece of us comes out and it is, I mean, to feel the feelings that you feel when you get into deep codependency sober, oh man, it's, it's brutal. So, but you had that kind of modeled, it sounds like with mom following these, these guys around, what was, can you talk a little bit about like growing up and if with lots of wannabe step parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, I want to kind of define codependency a little bit more yes, please, um, please. because I think that I always had this idea of what actually Nicole used to be like, Oh, you need to, you need to work through the code of steps. And I'd be like, I don't, I'm, I don't really care. You know, like if I go into a gas station and someone looks at me weird, I'm not carrying it around all day. Like that's, I thought that if you were codependent, you were gravely affected by people all the time. And I didn't feel that way. I've always been pretty independent. I've never piggybacked off anybody for anything. Um, I've always worked like six jobs and I've, I've always been, um, very resourceful and independent in, in most areas. However, when I did hit my bottom, um, in codependency, I did go see the founders of Codependence Anonymous. They live in Scottsdale, Mary and Ken Richardson, beautiful, amazing people. And I saw Ken and I saw Mary for years and they explained it. This codependency is you have this shame that got like instilled in you when you were small. For me, it's that abandonment with my dad. And then with my mom, she has, um, my mom is very boundaryless, right? So I have two polar opposites. 
opposites. I have, I have a lot of abandonment and then I have feeling overwhelmed all the time, boundaryless. I have to go along for the ride. I'm responsible for feelings. So I have these two polarities happening and I have this shame that I'm, I experienced as a small child and I'm living my life, either recreating that sensation or avoiding it. Right. And so we're not really codependent on this person where we're codependent on this shame and we start to live life avoiding or recreating. Can you talk about the shame a little bit? Because just in, in you, you know, even as it relates to you. So when you say codependent on this shame, how can you, how would you describe the shame that people feel? Like, um, I think to the layman, they might think like, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that I blew my nose too loudly in a public crowd. Like, what does that look like for people in in terms of that feeling? I think that there's, um, and what I'm, I'm learning now in therapy, because I've always, I had a very uncomfortable relationship with therapy and now I have a healthy relationship with therapy. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned recently is that there's toxic shame and healthy shame. Like, Uh, Oh, if I blow my nose and I get that, Ooh, I feel ashamed (laughs) about that. I'm not going to do that again. Um, but there's a difference between guilt. I did something wrong and something is wrong with me. Right. So talk to us about toxic shame. The toxic shame is, and I think people get those really confused. The toxic shame is like something is wrong with me inherently. Um, Um, And so for me, um, what I can explain my shame where my shame, my whole childhood, I guess, from a very small age, what I learned was that I'm not chosen. Mm. Like I'm just not chosen, right? Like I don't get chosen. I'm not considered, right? Those are, and so so there's that something shame. wrong with me as, so there's something about me that causes me to not be chosen. Right. Yes. Something is an inherently wrong with me that I'm not going to get chosen and I'm not going to be considered in any equation. Um, and thematically my whole life has, uh, played out to where either I've recreated that or avoided that. Right. So if I start to feel that sensation, I either run or I, br- I come closer in return, both causes pain. Um, and both places aren't healing or authentic. Right. Right. That makes total sense. Right. Because there's, there's, and you had you with your situation, that's, that's such a, reminds me a little bit of, um, I don't know if this is, you know, kind of off topic, but running with scissors, um, there was a book running with scissors and it was very, very similar. Um, and glass castle, which was another really amazing book, kind of same story where how do you not, you know, it's one thing to have the avoidant parent or the parent that's not around and then one parent that's doing all the different roles. It's another thing to have fear of abandonment and fear of being enveloped, right? At the same time, how there's just no way that you're going to come up with something perfectly in the middle with your own healthy coping skills. They're not modeled anywhere and you don't stay anywhere. So you moved around and you can talk about that. You're not staying anywhere long enough for someone else to model it for you. Right. And that was really confusing, really confusing for me as a child, because it kept, that shame kept getting reinforced over and over. Why did you keep, why didn't she, I mean, date anyone in the area? Like what, what was that about? She, you know what? I'm not, she did. So she dated, there was a man who was like my father. They were together for about seven years, but they would break up a lot. And so what would happen was when we moved away from New York, um, she needed to get away from Chris. So they got in 
they broke up. We moved to Ohio for six okay. months. Okay, so mm-hmm. she's moving places to get away. I see. So, and I, oh, I so relate. I don't know if you relate to that, but moving away from someone. Oh, as, yes. So as yeah. not towards them. <laughs> right. So that's what she did. She was like, we got to get out of here. We got to get right, away right. from Chris. Okay. So then we moved move. to Ohio. We moved to Ohio for six months. I started kindergarten there. And my whole uh, support system was my grandfather, who was my best friend. He was also an alcoholic, but he was brilliant. And my aunt, who I absolutely adored, and they lived in New York. Um, And so, and my grandmother lived there and all my other aunts and uncles, but my two people in my life were my grandfather and my aunt. And we moved to Ohio, nobody. I live in this tiny, I go from New York City to living in this tiny cut town, Bath or Lima, Ohio. I went to this tiny school, Bath Elementary school. And it was, it was a culture shock. And not (laughs) only that, she found a boyfriend right away. So then this new guy comes in and then her and Chris get back together, but Chris lives in Virginia now. So I'm in Ohio. I'm in kindergarten. We leave because her and Chris get back together, but we don't go back to New York. We follow Chris to Virginia. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's always been that back and forth. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I so relate to that because I have, I have broken I mean, the, actually the boyfriend we were talking about before the, uh, before we started the episode in, oh. in Prescott, I was like, <laughs> we have to break up and I'm moving. Like, like I can't break up with you and stay here. So yeah. I'm going to have to leave the state, you know, <laughs> yeah. to be completely relocate. Yeah. yeah. Nothing can remind me of you. No, nothing can remind How, how could I possibly break up and, and live in the same state? That's, it's ludicrous. Right. But that's, that is like, that logic is, is so wounded, you know, based. Like if any, I can't handle any discomfort or any reminders. So I have to leave and remove all semblance of this person. Otherwise it'll be too painful. And that's coming from that wounded state, except I was the same age as your mom, but she had a, she had a child. So, I mean, that, that tells you a lot. And then someone in your life was, was in the military. So that was, yeah. So that was my stepdad. So So she got um, married. Yeah. So we moved back to, we moved back to Ohio when I was, or we moved from Ohio to Virginia when I was six Okay. and she married my stepdad when I was 12. So there was a lot between six and 12. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. I went to go see my dad that, you know, in that year, her and Chris broke up a few times. There was other, lots of other boyfriends, but the theme to go back was that I was never considered in each one of those moves. I was never, it was, she needed to satisfy an urge within her right. and not stabilize. So yeah. Have you talked to her about that since then? I mean, obviously, again, this isn't to bash your mom because I, I, I would have, it's so, it's so hard in these situations. Mm-hmm. Like I would have, if I had had a child, you would, my child would be saying the exact same thing. So I totally get that. It, it becomes your children's story. So we kind of have to like, I mean, what's your relationship with her today? We don't have much of a relationship. And here's another thing. This is, this is a theme is like, I got sober and Mm -hmm. everybody started, I made amends and my parents are so happy. And, and they have this blossoming relationship. That was not my experience, right? I celebrated 20 years last Friday and my mom doesn't know my sobriety date, nor does she ever has said a word about it Mm -hmm. since I got sober. I mean, she did in the very, very beginning, but that wasn't, 
it wasn't that I needed to get sober. It was like, I needed to do all this other stuff and stop acting a certain way. Right. Um, so our relationship, um, our perception of what happened is very mm-hmm. different. She thinks like, Oh, we did all this fun stuff and we went to Disney world and we mm-hmm. did this. And mm-hmm. you know, we were always moving and you've experienced so much. Yes, that's true. Balance, right? Like we have to have an honest perspective. Yes. However, I never stayed in one place longer than a year. So I was panicked all the time because nothing was ever going to stay the same. Right. So what her perception is, is in those years, the one year that we stayed in this place, we did a ton of stuff. Yes. But I was holding on for dear life. Like I was like, we're going to move. We're leaving. It's all going to end. All these people are going away because that's that the was experience. Like, yeah, I was, and it did happen, for, right? And it did happen over and over and over. So eventually, and we stayed in Virginia the longest, but, um, we moved back and forth. So she did get married to a man in the military. He was, uh, an officer, like a major in the army and he was a helicopter pilot and he was very militant. And my mom's like this liberal, liberal free bird therapist that moves everywhere all the time. And And then we started moving and hanging out with, you know, military people. And not that that's bad, but it was definitely a major culture shock, a major culture shock. We moved, I'm from New York. I moved to Virginia, which is, you know, for, for the most part, it's, it's pretty, it's not too rough of a transition. And then we moved to a very tiny town in Tennessee and it was rough. Um, I was 12, I was seventh grade, um, which is a rough year for anyone anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Rough. Um, No one gets out of that. Okay. Yeah. And my stepdad wasn't receptive to me. Like he didn't talk to me. He didn't like engage with me. And my mom, I remember she'd always be like, go, you know, go tell Larry, you know, you want to go do this. Like she would send me purposely Mm. send me in to try to Mm. shift the dynamic, knowing he didn't want a relationship with me. Right. So I would just get set up for failure over and over and over. And I know her intentions were good. She wanted maybe if I send her, but it wasn't, I was, I was 13. I wasn't responsible for that relationship. And so that was really hard. That was really confusing as well. And then trying to transition to this military lifestyle where it's, constant moving, constant relocating. But most of the military kids grew up like that. So they would see each other on bases and relate. Here's the other thing. My mom didn't want to live on base. uh, So we lived off base wherever we went. So I didn't, I was, I was with kids in Tennessee who grew up together and they had very different ideas of society. And then I, I would, and then the base kids all went to school on base together. So I didn't even get assimilated into the, to the military culture. I was like put off base. So it was, it was, I was always trying to fit in yeah. always, yeah. always trying to fit in, right. find new friends, make new friends. So at some point you started using, when mm-hmm. did you start, when did you start using to cope? Right before we moved. So, um, when my mom did marry my stepdad, I was, I was really, really, really upset. Part of the backstory of that was I had a, uh, so I was in the big brothers, big sisters program when Mm -hmm. I was little and I had a big sister and she was amazing. I mean, I had her for years and we were really, really, really close and she got married. Um, and I was the flower girl in her wedding, but my stepdad was one of the groomsmen. So that's how that happened. Yeah. So then I know very uncomfortable. Uh Um, so then they got married shortly after that. Um, that's how they met. 
Yes. Oh. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're like, I can't do anything, right? Like, wait, this is the story of my life. Yeah. Right. What? I'm not considered. (laughs) Consider me here. This is my big sister. You know, I was so, so I just was constantly navigating stuff. I shouldn't even be navigating. Like I was scared to do or want anything in, in this fear of like being taken over, you know? So yeah. So they got married and I was not, I was in the wedding, but I refused. I was so upset. Like I, I was 12. I was 12. Okay. I wouldn't do anything. I'm not in one of the pictures. This was like, like I refused to be in the pictures during the reception. I swam in the pool downstairs the entire time. I would not come up. I walked down the aisle and I sat in the pew. And then when it was done, I just went and swam in the pool. And like, like that was that. And then we moved to Tennessee. And then, um, right before we moved to Tennessee is when I started using, I was 12 and I was in sixth grade and we, um, I was never raised religious per se, I guess, but I was raised in like a church environment. I was raised in the Unitarian church, which I'm super grateful for. I actually, uh, look back and that was probably one of the most, um, stable times in my life when I was a part of that, uh, community, they were so welcoming, so loving, and they, they're not Christian based. They're just non-denominational, but even more than that, they're just a total welcoming community. And I was on a camping trip at the Unitarian church and there's like Wiccans and pagans that go there and Buddhists. And I was exposed to so much when I was little and that I'm really grateful for. Um, and that church was amazing. And there was like this Wiccan, camp out or something. And they were like, the moms were doing like these Wiccan things celebrating the earth. And, uh, there was these older kids there and they were like in eighth grade. And, uh, me and my friend, Emily, we were like, okay, we're going to drink, but we won't smoke weed, you know, like let's make a pack. <laughs> but the eighth graders were like chanting our names and we felt so cool, you know, mm-hmm. cause we were like in sixth grade and they were eighth graders. And I don't remember if I got drunk. I don't know if I got stoned. All I know is that I felt a part of something yeah. that I knew that I could find no matter where I went, no matter where I went, there was like this sense of comfort. There was this, um, place of acceptance where I was not the kid. I was not the girl without the dad or the military girl or the girl who's moving or the girl that just the new girl at school. Um, they, I felt like they genuinely wanted me to experience joy and I felt a part of it. And me and Emily, we drank, we smoked weed. I think some girls were tripping acid and she was like passed out or some girl was like throwing up and the other girl was helping her. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is great community. (laughs) This is fantastic. And so that was the beginning. And, And at that moment I didn't use, I wasn't a daily user. I wasn't even a weekend user, but I did significantly take a turn. Like at that point I started stealing. Remember the cigarettes were like right by uh-huh. the front and you uh-huh. could just take as many as you wanted. And they were, that they were in, in the carousel in the seat. Yeah. And they were in singles. You could buy singles. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was amazing. I know. What was I, I was telling that to somebody the other yeah. day. I was like singles, baby. Yeah. Just right. But the register, yeah. you're just dumping yeah. them in your bag. No. Um, I was in <laughs> Vegas and I, I came up to the register and somebody was buying a pack of cigarettes. Eight, one pack. I was like, it is not financially feasible. Like you have to be wealthy to be a 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unreal. Yeah. 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 So I remember we started stealing cigarettes around that Mm -hmm. time and smoking really fast to get high. Um, Totally. You know, people were like, drink lots of gallons of water and you'll feel drunk. Like I just started (laughs) acting out. Yeah. Anything Anything they'd suggest. Yep. Yeah. And, and the the way that I explain it now is anything to not be in my body, right? Because being in my body was really scary. And so that's when, you know, I started just acting out in all areas. And when I moved to Tennessee, that's when I realized those are the friends I'll always find, right? Like instant, this is going to fix the inconsistency because drugs and alcohol will always be consistent everywhere I go. And those type of people, I will always be able to find. Did you have that? Like, do you remember having that thought or, or was it a fee- or was it a feeling? It was, a, it was actually a thought when I moved to Colorado later on when I was okay. in high okay. school. Yeah. It was a very distinct thought. And so the evolution of that experience drove me to when I lived in Colorado, I, I started 10th grade and the system that I came up with was I would bring a cigarette and I would light it in the bathroom first day of school. And any of the girls, uh-huh. they'd be like, girl, you're brave, you know? And I'd be yeah. like, they'd be like, can I have a dragon? We would all take, and they were my new group of friends. Yep. And I, I made that decision after moving like two more times after Tennessee, that that's how I was going to find my people. Yeah. That's a great system. It was a great, I know I was so proud of myself. I was like, this is what we're doing. Oh yeah. Because these are the kids that will know where the drugs are. Totally. (laughs) Totally. I I love when people, people are like, how did you know where to find them? I'm like, "Mm, you know, all the places you avoid. I just mm-hmm. go over there and say, yeah. Hey, how's it going? I'm Ashley. Let's party. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. like it's, it's, it's the same way you would know where the drugs are. I know where the drugs are too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So how did it go from, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about like alcohol and drugs saved us. They did something for us at a time where there weren't any other coping skills that we had access to or knew about, and there was no one there to teach us about them. So they saved us during this period of time. How did they go from being this thing that got you community to being this thing that made you want to die? Yeah. And for me, the moving was, um, and the, like the, the, the turning point for all of that, because I was so sad. Like every time I would move, I'd have, you know, a boyfriend and I'd have to break up with them or um, a whole new group. You know, I think one time I was, when we left Tennessee, I don't even remember his name, but I remember I was just screaming at my mom. I was like, I was going to marry him. And she was like, no, you weren't. And I was just like, I didn't even think of that. The the relationships that you would have to mm -hmm. forcibly leave. Oh God. All of them. Yeah. All of them. And I was always in transition, right? Always bracing for impact. And, and so, um, I started using drugs and alcohol and it took the intensity, right? It it wasn't that it wasn't there. It just took that intensity down enough for me to like, kind of dissociate from what was going on and not in like a multiple personalities dissociation, like more of like, I don't want to be in my body and experience this right now. And so my, actually my stepdad, he went to South Korea for a year on duty. And my mom didn't want to be in Tennessee. So we're in Tennessee. He got stationed in South Korea. So she was like, we can't be in Tennessee. This place is horrible. And I was like, yeah, like, like, yeah. Like I'm getting bullied at school because I have a New York accent, you know, like I consciously made it go away when I was living Mm -hmm. in Tennessee because it was so, Mm -hmm. 
it was, it was nothing I had ever experienced before in my yep. life. You know, uh, yeah, I do know I had a Boston accent when we moved to the Bay area in first grade and no one would sit next to me because they were afraid of the girl with curly hair and a Boston accent. And it was like one of those things. And I'm sure you had this where you like, you don't even realize that you're dif- that different. Like you, like it's a, a news to you that this is problematic. Right. Uh, 100%. Because I, and I didn't even realize that the other moves, but Tennessee was right. so polar opposite. Right. I mean, there was like, I didn't know about the KKK. Like there's yeah. oh yeah things that are, that were still go, they still whipped you at school, paddled you. They called them licks. So I go from like this public school system in New York, that's very like, you know, progressive and positive reinforcement. And then I moved to Tennessee and they're paddling kids daily all the time. Teachers like hitting. In what, what um, year? Two, uh, 1990, I want to say th- four to six. Wow. Still paddling. They called them licks. So you would get like the teacher would be like four licks and you would go down to the principal's office and he would paddle you four licks. I mean, I didn't get hit because my mom signed the waiver like not to, yeah. but, um, oh, oh, okay. You had to allow it. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, you, you had to not allow, not it. allow it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, opt out. You had to, yeah, but uh, most kids, they got hit at school. So it was such a polar experience, like polar opposite experience of what I was used to. So my mom was like, we got to get out of here. And I'm like, okay, where are we going? She's like, we're going back to Virginia. So we moved back to Virginia just for a year while he's in Korea. But all my friends go to this, this high school called Tallwood. My mom makes me go to Kempsville, this whole other high school. All my friends are at Tallwood. Like nothing. I was like, why don't you just put me at Tallwood? Like, why are we perfect? Because the house she wanted wasn't in that district. Right, right, she right. didn't want it. So it was just like this. Not considered. No. So even, then even when it, co- even when it was really actually feasible to consider you. Right. A hundred percent. And then we went, when he came home, we moved directly to Colorado. So I re-engaged with all this new group of friends and met and started hanging out with my old friends before we had moved to Tennessee. I had a boyfriend, you know, I was in ninth grade at the time and freshman year at the end of freshman year, we pick up, we move back, we moved to Colorado because he came home from the military. And that's when I made the decision, like, this is how I find friends. And I was 15. So what went wrong? What, I mean, haha, right? Like, um, but, mm-hmm. but like what, what happened in Colorado and why, why, how, how did the, how did you get from 15? Like, okay, this is my coping skill to 18. Like I need to be sober and never do this again. When I was, um, 15 in Colorado, I, it started with the normal drinking, smoking weed. And I think I had enough of a community in Virginia that freshman year in high school that I kind of had a little bit of self-esteem pulled from some of those past relationships. Like I had enough connection. And then when we got to Colorado, I, that's when I was like, I'm going to smoke the cigarette. I'm going to have all the people come. Those are my friends. And even in Colorado, I went to a different high school every year. Like it was nonstop, nonstop. And so I do the cigarette thing. And then, uh, moving forward, I, I'm trying to think what the turning point was. I got a job at Sonic and everybody was doing meth in the kitchen. And, <laughs> and that was like the, the service turning. there was amazing. 
And the car hops yeah. were just natural drug dealers. Yeah. It was oh, I know, right? That's so amazing. Oh, it was perfect. Yeah. Um, it was like a drug dealer's, like we had a drug dealer that worked in the kitchen and he would give the drugs to the car hop when somebody would come up and she would bring it out. It was such a racket. But um, anyways, so one day, I mean, I was, I was miserable you know, honestly, I was really miserable. I mean, I was really, really miserable. And at this point, Sonic my wasn't stepdad your had job. So it was not, well, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but in Colorado, Sonic was like the cool spot. I mean, yeah, the cool spot. Like everyone was like, Whoa, you work at Sonic. How'd you get a job there? Um, it was next to my high school. Right. We had okay. open campus. Okay. So everybody would go over there. And then they'd match in the um, kitchen. So well, then the older guys were in the kitchen doing the math. The high school girls were like the car hops. Right, the food out. Right. So then I started getting into that whole crowd. But I think what really happened, two things happened. And I'm not saying that my mom didn't, didn't want the best for me. Do you know what I mean? But she got married and my stepdad did not really want. Later on, my mom has told me that my stepdad did tell her at some point, <sighs> Like I married you, not your child, you know? And so my mom's told me that in later years. So that made sense. Like when she said, I'm like, oh, well, no shit. I I always knew that. Like, why did you make me, you know? So I think what happened was that I was really, really angry at this point. I'm 15 and I'm pissed. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm I'm over it. You know, like I've been doing this. Oh, I'd be so over it. Like, I've been doing this for, since I was five Yeah, and I was like tired, Yeah, really tired. Yeah. And I was not pleasant to be around. I was angry in the house. I was pissed. I was running away a lot. I didn't want to be there, but I knew that they didn't want me there anyways. Yeah. Do you know, yeah. like two things were occurring? Yeah. Like, yeah, it was a disaster, but I knew that they, they didn't want me there. Yeah. And they didn't definitely didn't want me how I was. Um, so I started, I think I was causing a lot of chaos in their new marriage, you know, that was already shaky because he had already been away to Korea, you know? And I just remember I was, I have probably in trouble for something and there was a drug dealer selling meth in the kitchen. And, um, he, I was like, he he had me go run it out to somebody and I was like, what what is this? He's like, it's meth. Like you'll get everything done. You'll get your homework done. You know, you'll get everything. And I was like, dude, I'll try it. And he's like, take, and he gave me a little bit for not like telling on him and car hopping it out. He was like, just do this, go home. He put in a little tinfoil. He tried to explain it to me how you smoke it. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like tinfoil and a straw, yeah. but don't burn the straw. Yeah, totally. Maybe you do it on the stove. Sounds like he was real complicated. Not, I was like, that does not feel safe. <laughs> I'm going to light the house on fire. Um, he was like, just, just crush it up and then snort up your nose. So I was like, okay, cool. So I went home alone in my bedroom, oh crush it up, oh God. snort it. And next thing I know it, it's like 6 a.m. Uh-huh. I have watched probably 10 episodes of Jerry Springer, uh-huh. all the nighttime TV, uh-huh. like the infomercials. My mom yep. is getting up. My bedroom's clean. My homework's done. I'm ready for school. I mean, I was like, this is a game changer. Do you know what I mean? Like, and the beautiful thing for me about meth was that like, I wasn't in my body, but I was in my body, Yeah, you know, right. because I'm, it's not a, dis- it's, not, you know, it's not taking you out the same way. Totally true. No, because the weird thing about me is that I don't check out. Like when I feel things, I feel them ve- very deeply. 
right? Like I may walk away from a scenario, but trust me, I am in my closet at home experiencing extreme sadness over it. I may not show somebody, but when I feel when I feel deeply about things, I really feel deeply. I feel hate deeply, anger deeply, love deeply, joy, like all of the emotion. And I remember like, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not checked out high, like smoking weed. Do you know what I mean? Because at this point I'm a daily weed smoker. I'm drinking on the weekends. Um, I've dabbled in a few different things, but at this point, 16 is when I started the meth. And I I felt in my body and in control very much so, but, and a very alive, like I felt it very deeply and that's what I loved about it. But you're also high as a kite. Like your reality is not like, Oh, my mom's awake. Oh my gosh. You know, I was not. And not only that was like the first time I had done it. And that was the high that I tried every day. And I'm saying like, I, you know, I eased into the other things. This, the moment I, I smoked meth or did meth, I smoked it every day until the end. Like it was on, like I found my drug of choice and it spiraled out of control very quickly. That's so, and, and we talk about people here, like what's your drug of choice. And I, I always like to, I always like to kind of revisit this, which is Drug of choice, and because I, in you, you probably, you know, 20 years sober, you know what I'm talking about, which is when you hear someone or a parent say, oh, well, he, he did coke, but like the weed isn't a problem or the alcohol isn't a problem or whatever. And, you know, your drug of choice is the drug you would choose over anything else. Like every day, that's the one that works with your chemistry. But if you're truly alcoholic or addict or have the ism, then you're still going to, like you said, smoke weed every day. You're going to alcohol, like you're going to replace that if the, your drug of choice isn't there. Don't, don't be fooled by that. But the drug of choice is the one that, that works perfectly with your chemistry. Right. So I'll get into that too, because it was a significant, the beginning of the end was a very different experience for me, but yeah, the meth did for me what nothing else had ever done for me. I was in my body. I felt everything very deeply. I was experiencing life like, and everything was just like sensory overload. My nervous system was like on full speed and I tend to operate more in that space. Like I'm really good procrastinator. Like if I, I thrive under chaos, always have because I'm always moving. I, my whole life, I, I always had to reinvent myself. And so I gravitated towards that drug and I ran with it. Within a few months, I was kicked out of my house. I was living with my drug dealer uh, at 16 and I gotten kicked out of school, multiple schools. I was going to alternative school. Love me some alternative school. Yeah. I mean, it was such a bad alternative school that I begged my old school to let me back in. Oh, you didn't like it? Oh, listen, it was so bad. It was so bad. English was literally reading cat, dog. Uh, Social studies was, was like, or geography was learning like the States. It was so, math was like one plus one. It was so bare bones. I, 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 PE was walking across and swinging on the swings at the park. Like I was like, I can, I literally cannot do this. So, like, so, so that you, you couldn't do enough drugs to make that doable. Absolutely not. Like, <laughs> and, and the way that I am, like I, yeah. 
I'm not somebody who just wants to yeah. get by yeah. even getting high. Yeah. I've always been like, a yeah. like, okay, what are we doing? Where are we going? Yeah. How is this going to end? Yeah. What's the plan? I've always been like educationally book smart, if that makes sense. Yeah. And not in the way where I'm like, oh, I'm super smart because curious, I'm pretty You're curious. Yeah. And so I've always like, I always did good on tests. Like I don't have to go to class every day, but I would do well on the test. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I'm a really great test taker to regurgitate the information a month later. Absolutely not. Yeah. But I can take any test yeah. and, and pass it. So I'm at this alternative school and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've got to get back to my old school. So I beg my, my, my principal, I'm like, please. And he was like, look, anything less than a B you're gone. And I'm like, what about the days? I can barely, I'm taking the city bus. So I live, I live at my dealer's house, which I'm at this time, I'm living in Colorado Springs down at the base of the mountain. There's a place called the Broadmoor. Um, there's apartments over by the Broadmoor. I'm living in the penthouse. I'm six, 17 at the time. I'm living in the penthouse with like, not like my, I'm living with like my dealer who's now my boyfriend, but then like his dealer. So we have like this penthouse apartment. I should not be there. The cops come often and I'm taking, I'm the, the, the alternative school was right by there. So it was super convenient, but I'm like, I can't, it's so far away. My old school is so far away, but I'm high all the time. And I have plenty of time on my hands. So I stay, I just do a lot of drugs and I take the city bus at four 45 and I make it to school. Cause the city bus, it took like three hours to get to school. Oh I would take it all the way to my school and then go to school. I ended up graduating. Think I, wow. I don't know how I did it. Yeah. Um, I did graduate. I was, I think I was like number 319 out of 320 kids. Thank, thank you, methamphetamine. <laughs> I think I had a 1.75 curfew or GPA. It was bad, but I did graduate. And the reason why is because, you know, my mom at the time, I'm not living at home. I'm living in these just terrible scenarios. And I'm just like, I so badly, I just want... I don't even know how to explain it. Honestly, I think in my head, I was just like, she thinks I'm a failure. She thinks I'm a loser. I just got to graduate high school. Do you know what I mean? Like, and then it's not a drug problem. You know, like if I graduate high school, then I can keep doing meth. If I graduate high school, then maybe I'll be considered in whatever scenario, mm-hmm. you know, and so, trying to get that, that, that acceptance from her. Yeah. yeah. And then also with myself, yeah. like, see, it's really not that bad a lot of your friends dropped out or a lot of your friends have had babies um, and you're still going. And so I did graduate high school, which super grateful for. Um, But in this time period, I, um, this is where, you know, the mess stops working at, at some point, you know, I don't have a perfect attendance, but I'm, I'm a disaster. My, my boyfriend who was my drug dealer, um, he's violent, extremely violent. So I'm in a physically abusive relationship when I'm 17. I don't even know what that is. Honestly, I am hanging out with crowds. Like I I hung out in the majority of my friends were like, in bike shops, you know, like not, they're all in like biker gangs and we would hang out in motorcycle bike shops and do a bunch of meth. And cause my drug dealing boyfriend was like a car mechanic and a and he worked on bikes and stuff. And like the route I'm going is really bad. 
And so one day I'm driving down, I pick up a bunch of drugs and we go up to garden of the gods. And I think we smoked meth in the mat, like up in the mountains and then came down and a drunk driver ran a red light and slammed into my car. My car flipped a few times and, um, and I had like five people in my car. Everybody remarkably was actually somewhat okay. I mean, I had like three broken toes and the drunk driver was passed out of the front in her wheel or at her wheel. And so I climb out my window and I run over to her car and I'm yelling at her. And I've like, I still have like a teener of meth. In my sock, <laughs> right. And I'm like, and I go over to her car and I'm freaking out. I don't know if she's drunk yet. And I just see her at the wheel and the horn and the airbag and all this stuff. And I'm like screaming, I'm like, get out of your car. What are you doing? You're mad. But in my head, you're going so fast on meth. I'm like, did I run the red light? I don't know. Right. I don't know what color the light was. I'm so high. And at this point I'm like, so, so high because my adrenaline just skyrocketed. Yeah. Like yeah. a you're thousand pro- percent. Yeah. And so I'm yelling at her and I look over and her two-year-old son is no. underneath the dash of the front seat. Yeah. And I had a moment of clarity and I was like, I looked and I was like, please tell me he was alive. I don't know at the time. I just see him. And I was like, Oh, f- I have meth in my sock. I ran to the bathroom. I ditched the kid. I didn't give a shit. I like ran to the Seven Eleven on the corner. Cause I'm in downtown Colorado Springs, pull the meth out of my sock. Don't flush it because you have to come back for it. So I put it in like the fourth liner of the trash can, mm-hmm. um, put the lid back on. And then I run back out to the car. The kid is alive. When I got there, some of the witnesses had pulled him out. He is alive. He's like two. He was completely in shock. Aww. He was like catatonic. Aww. She was passed out at the wheel. There was a bottle of alcohol mm. in the front seat. And at that moment I got stone cold sober. And I was like, you cannot do this. Like you, you cannot do this. Like it's over. Like you have to stop. And I turn around and I see all my drug using friends coming out of my car and they're a mess. And I was, and I was like, this cannot, this, this has to stop. And so my mom has to come pick me up because I'm 17. She doesn't know that I'm high. And, uh, I go back to her house for the first time in a long time. And, uh, they don't take me to the hospital. They're like, you need to go to the hospital. I'm like, no, no, no. Cause in my head, I'm like, they're going to drug test me. They're going to drug test me. And they're like, God, your heart rate's really elevated. And I'm like, I know I've never been in an accident before. And I'm like, Oh my God. my God. Um, yeah. And so I go home and then I go back to my apartment the next day. And that was, that was literally the last time I ever used meth. And it was really hard, like really, really hard. I was almost 18 at the time. It was right before I got sober. And in my head, I was like, it's my boyfriend. It's the friends that, because when I had the moment of clarity, I turned around and I'm like, this has to change. And I saw my friends and I was like, I got to get the f- away from them. And I need to get away from the abusive boyfriend because he's, he punched out my car window one time, dragged me out by my hair. You know, he was always cheating on me. Um, and he was very violent. And, and so my 18th birthday came around and I white knuckle it. Like I'm, I'm trying so hard. I don't do meth, but I can't not smoke weed and drink. I can't not do right. it. I cannot be in my body. Right. Like I cannot be have in the my skills. body. I have no skills and everything that I know. My grandfather was an alcoholic. You know, I've witnessed alcoholism in my family and I have absolutely zero skills. And so I started at the time I started tripping a lot of acid. I know it's really weird. I go from meth to acid, but then I start tripping acid. Like I literally cannot be in my body. And I knew this was like the beginning to the end, you know, because this is not sustainable. Like you cannot trip acid multiple times a week. Like this is not good. And I had probably one of the worst 
trip. I mean, it was the worst trip I've ever experienced in my life. Like I went backwards. I was, uh, I was like an adult. And then I started going back. I saw myself as a fetus. Like it was a whole, it was the worst experience in my life. Like I tripped for two weeks. I couldn't go to sleep. It was beyond a bad trip. Like it was, there was like, I saw the line, like there's a line. I know why people don't come back. Right. Like I had to make the decision every day to not go over the line, like mentally. Um, and it took a few weeks for me to pull a little bit of semblance together after that. And then I started, and then after that, I start. this is going to sound really weird. After that, I started doing like weird stuff, like reading the Bible secretly in my bathroom. I started like sleeping with a knife underneath my bed. I started to get really paranoid about things. Like something chemically happened at that time, um, that, I don't know. Like now I know I have clarity on it, but it took a really long time to bring whatever came out of balance back into balance for me after that experience. And I started fake smoking cigarettes because I didn't want anybody to know that I wasn't using drugs anymore. Right, right. Like I was like, Like, so how do we even do this? Yeah. Like how do I, I don't know what to do, but I was seeking, right. It was the beginning of the end. That's why I keep saying it's the beginning of the end because I started to seek, right. I, I, I started going to this youth group at this church. I started going back to therapy. I found this, or my mom found me this therapist and me and my mom are, my mom's like at this point, our relationship is like, she drops off groceries at my house, right. okay. um, in my apartment with this, my boyfriend. And so finally it just got really bad. Like it got really bad. I tried to white knuckle I'm 18 at the time at this time. And I tried to white knuckle, not using anything and it wasn't working. And so I started drinking again. I started smoking weed, but then everything got worse. Like I started to get extra paranoid, like something really happened to me after that. Yeah. That acid yeah, trip. It sounds like um, something chemically, something yeah, shifted. I, yeah. I couldn't use normally like everything. I was like, this is terrible. Like, this, like my only solution I can't even do. I think I tried cocaine one time and it was not good. Like everything started to unravel, but drinking was okay. Like it, I didn't get the paranoia. Um, and I didn't feel that reaction. Right. And that's when I was like, I decided that I needed to get away from the boyfriend. I needed to get away from my mom. Oh, my mom at the time, my mom and my stepdad, uh, they got pregnant. And so they started their own like other family oh, during no. this time period. So my mom's pregnant. They're having a baby. I'm suffering like nightmare. So then I'm like, I'm going to go to college. Like that was, I graduated high school and I'm like, I'm going to go to college. That's, I need to go. And I literally, my mom was like, where are you going to go? And I pointed to a map and I was like, Arizona, I'm just going to go to Arizona. And when college time came, I drove to Arizona and I had a panic attack all the way, like blue, like hot, like like couldn't breathe the entire way, pacing, pacing, pacing. The boyfriend, the drug dealing boyfriend came with me. <laughs> I tried to have him not come and I started driving without him. It was such a nightmare. Um, he ended up coming and um, I got an apartment and I was going to one community co- college class. Um, my mom moved back to New York with my stepdad and had a baby there. Um, they were across the country from me because um, he got stationed somewhere else. And then I come to Arizona and the abuse doesn't stop with the boyfriend. I thought it was a friend's. I found the same friends where I worked and at school. And I thought, and I wanted to move cause I was like, okay, it's been three years. Right. I got to get the f- out of here. Right. Like that's the only thing that I knew to do was to like leave. get leave. 
leave. Right. And so, um, I was getting squirrely anyways. And so he, and the boyfriend came with me and he was still equally abusive. And I still found the same friends that I had found the 12 years prior, you know, and moving and, and it just, it started a spiral again. You know, I started smoking weed I started drinking the paranoia had subsided cause I had created some space there. And then one night he like beat the crap out of me and, and I still went to work. I worked at Denny's on I-10 and baseline. <laughs> and, um, do you know where that mm-hmm. is? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I was hoping mm-hmm. you did. Um, it's the most important part of my story because I had a manager, um, and he called like my ex-boyfriend was, would like sit outside of Denny's and like all night while I was working. And like, he was like, this isn't, like, you're young, you're like 18. Like, what is this guy doing? You know? Um, and he beat me up one night and my manager called the police and got charges pressed and he moved back to Colorado. Um, the police said you can either go to Colorado cause he wasn't a resident yet. I think like the deal was either go to Colorado or we'll press charges. So he moved back to Colorado and I was in Arizona alone, like, alone, like for the first time ever, like, and I waited tables at Denny's and these people, they like came in every night. I'm like such a crier too. I should have warned you about that. Oh, I don't need warning. I don't need, I can, I can do emotion. Okay. Yeah. And so I, um, these people came in Denny's every single night and they left me really, really big tips and they were young and they asked me like weird questions. Like what's your favorite color? And I'd be like, ah, no one's asked me my favorite color since I was like in third grade. Like, <laughs> You know, and they'd be like ocean or mountain or, you know, pick between two cars. What's your dream car? And they would ask me all these questions and they would bring coloring books and like make me these like really like, we love you. You're so awesome. Have a great night. Thank you for your service. And they always left the restaurant cleaner than it was when they got there, you know, and they remembered things that I told them. Like I had my, my 19th birthday was coming because I got sober a few weeks before my 19th birthday. And they got me this blue fish cake and they brought it to me. And, um, and I didn't understand. Like, I was like, you know, when like people see you for the first time in like a really long time, like I was considered in this like equation of their life and they didn't even know me. And so I had my last use on January 23rd. I tried it again. This group of people that I met from, I don't even know where I met them. We went to Sedona and we did cocaine and we got drunk and I passed out in some guy's truck and it was like six o'clock in the morning outside the Coca Pelli Inn. You know, Coca Pelli Inn. <laughs> oh my God, I do. <laughs> and the people that I'm with, they're like setting off the car alarm, waking me up. <laughs> and I just look, I sit up and I look over and that was it. I was like, this sucks. You know, like that was my bottom. And that night I went to work at Denny's. We drove back and I went to work and they brought me this thing that they like colored. And I was like, you guys are so nice. And I was like, I asked them something. I was like, can you like die of like being sad all the time? Like I asked them some random question like that. And I started crying and they just started talking to me. And then somewhere in that conversation, I was just like, I did cocaine last night and I'm scared. I'm going to start doing meth. And I get really paranoid because this is what happened. And they were members of a 12 step group. And the next day they took me to my first meeting and I've been sober ever since. Right. And like, 
I will be forever grateful for that group of people. And I want to say like anonymity is so important because if they would have told me that they were sober or members of Alcoholics Anonymous before the time that it was necessary to tell me that, I would have never talked to them. Like that would have not have been my solution. My solution would be to avoid them. Right. 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 And so they didn't disclose it until it was necessary, you know, until I was ready. Um, So I think that's really important to touch on because a lot of people, especially when you get sober young, you're like, I'm sober, I'm sober, I'm sober. And everyone, there's these Instagrams and everyone's like, you know, I'm sober, I'm sober. And like, sometimes, sometimes you you miss it, you know, like you miss that person. And I was not that person that would have been like, Hey, are you sober? I need to be sober. I was different. You know, like I didn't, I needed the attraction, the attraction rather than promotion. And they were so attractive. They were like the most beautiful people. And after that, so they were all a part of that young people's program that I ended up getting sober with at the three year long program. So there's, there's been some controversy. I just want to touch on this. There's been some controversy about this specific program, but it was a really positive, beautiful experience for you. Not so much for some people. Do you want to just touch on that a little bit about, you know, I just think it's an interesting um, thought experiment to talk about how one circumstance could be seen so negatively by some people and change someone else's life in such a beautiful way. Yeah. I think that, um, because my whole, I don't, because of my experience when I was little, like this is my perception with what's happening here. Like I'm moving a lot and I don't feel joy. And I feel like that was so disregarded in my childhood, like what I was experiencing and my mom was experiencing it differently. It's really important to say like, those people are right. You know, like they processed this young people's enthusiastic sobriety program in the way that they did, right? Whether it was... Wait, let's back up. When you say those people are right, can you elaborate? What do you mean by that? The people that had a really bad experience. Like I don't want to, I don't want to discredit the pain or the trauma somebody has experienced. It's kind of like when you date a guy and someone's like, oh, he was the worst. And you're like, no, it's fine. It doesn't mean he wasn't the worst. Like he was you know, like, yeah, um, totally both can occur right? um, simultaneously, both can have different experiences and they can both be honored in the same space. Right. Totally agree. And so, so I get sober and I knew something was a little off. I mean, I remember being like my first sponsor. I was like, are people like kind of transferring their addiction from drugs and alcohol onto this group? Like, I remember being like, this is kind of a little enmeshed. It's kind of boundaryless. There's kind of ideas that shouldn't even be brought in. Like, it's a very conservative, very conservative. Like, first time I voted, I wanted to vote a certain way, and they were not wanting me to vote Mm, that way. Um, By some of the, like, counselors and owners of the program, like, instilling their belief system very aggressively, honestly, on a lot of the members. I think I had me and my friend. I, okay. So I'm going to also say this. I went through this program. Majority of my friends also went through this program. We all have 20 plus years of sobriety. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to throw the baby out with totally. the bathwater. Totally. Right? <laughs> but, um, I think the people that ended up like one of my oldest, closest friends, actually my first sponsee, she's still sober today. And she, um, and we always talk about it. Like, 
like we can't, you kind of want to be mad at the dysfunction that was going on. You know, it was a very, it was a bubble, right? And everything was founded on enthusiastic sobriety. And the counselors had certain members that they put in um, positions of power and they kind of ran the show and then they would match, they would be like, oh, you should date so-and-so. And they would kind of match up dating after certain time periods and certain things were like not acceptable, which was none of their business certain ideas or ideologies or things that like girls couldn't wear bikinis because we would turn guys on and then that would be our fault. So we had to like, even at like lake, lake events, we'd have to be fully clothed, you know, or like, what are, why are you trying to get attention like that? You know? And I'm like, wait a second. I was like being promiscuous was never a part of my story. Like that I watched boyfriends come in and out of my life. That is never going to be a thing for me. Like, it's just not, I've always been long-term relationship girl. Well, then you're turning on newcomer guys and you should feel bad about that. There's things that would, that, and, and it was really toxic. Um, a lot of the, the principles of the program or the interpretation of some of the staff to the, I had so much dysfunction as a child and I was so used to like, just being like, people saying one thing and doing another all the time, right? right. But it didn't really affect that, what like, an interesting, I was like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know what yeah, I mean? It didn't deeply. That's re- That's a really interesting perspective perspective because that makes a lot of sense where how, and I've actually had that experience as well. It did. Uh, my moving looked different, but it, there was a lot of it. It was, I was sent away for summers. Like I never spent a summer in California, even though I lived there for a long period, you know, it was, we were always shipped off somewhere into different, um, cultures. And so strange things happening or whatever, it's sort of like, okay, you know, like just a, a, an ability to let it roll off. So that's really interesting, like to, an ability to it, to have the chaos be there and not be so deeply wounded by it. Right. Yeah. And, and Jenny was the same way. So my best friend, Jenny, um, same exact way. She had a really kind of chaotic childhood, moved around a lot, bounced between mom and dad, you know? So I feel like we were just like, Oh, we got this. This is familiar. Right. But some of the kids that came from really maybe stabler mm-hmm, homes mm-hmm. or with some like bootstraps, they when they left because once you left, like they kind of cut you off yep. in a sense. Yep. Um and you lose everybody yep. overnight. Yep. Like it was really I went on and I was a counselor for that program. Jenny was not. However, when I was in the group here in Phoenix and the person who owns the place in Phoenix is an amazing amazing. We're still in contact today. I still talk to my first sponsor from there. I still talk to the owner from there. We're very, very close. Um, I mean, we work actually in conjunction together a lot, oftentimes with a lot of adolescent and young adult referrals with what I do now. So that's why like, I love the program and what it gave me in Phoenix. It gave me stability. It gave me people who considered me. It gave me ways of thinking. It gave me direction. It gave me purpose. They built me up in ways that I had never experienced somebody building me up before. I found joy. I found my center. I found some of the closest friends that were still, all of us are still friends today. I found my ex-husband there. My daughter is a byproduct of that program. So does it have perception? Could it, could people come out really, really damaged from some of the cult like undertones that it's not actually like, I would say an organized cult, but some of the ways of thinking and the, the lack of flexibility within certain constructs are especially damaging to 
it's the, the foundation of it is all for peer support, you know? So the foundation is how do we get adolescents to stay clean and sober? So they use it in a peer support model. Um, the counselors instill their will and their own beliefs, which causes some issues. Um, It's always people's meddling, right? Like system, these organizations are set up with a, the, the foundation is based on, we're going to do good in the world and then people get involved. Yeah. And so, I went and worked for the sister program in Missouri and I understand why people experienced, here's the deal. We're not like, just because we get sober, we're not well, right? right? I'm not well, the way I perceive things aren't well. Sometimes, um, what happens to me, my interpretation, I know this, I moved to Missouri and worked for a program and a similar program. And it was not like Phoenix's. It was so dysfunctional and it was so abusive emotionally and mentally and physically too, because you had to work like 90 hours a week and you got paid a thousand dollars and you had to do it because don't you want people to get sober? And if you do it for money, then you're selfish. You know, um, there was a lot of things like if I said words wrong, if I, because I have, I still had like a little bit more of a New York accent. And if I said words wrong, they would ask me weird questions like, there was always an agenda and like, if they, if you didn't do what they wanted you to do or perceptionally your life wasn't going in the direction that they wanted it to go in, they would shame you. Like, where's your relationship with God? What are you being dishonest about? You're about to get drunk. And they would start using all these mm-hmm. fear tactics to corral you into this position they felt like you needed to be in. Um, and I understand maybe when I was in Phoenix, I didn't have that relationship with the staff that way when I got sober, but I understand that maybe that's what they were experiencing that I didn't experience later uh, until later on. I did leave working for that program. I left very positively and, uh, I actually am still, I mean, I still talk to every time someone quits there, they always call me because when I left, I was like, I'm not going to be this weird, resentful, And that's okay. If you are, it's okay. If you are weird and resentful, but I was like, I'm going to work through this. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to use and drink over this. So this particular situation, I just want to clarify, like for people who don't know the, how 12 step programs work and, and I'll use Alcoholics Anonymous in particular, which is uh, a 12 step program. There, the 12 step program does not have any one person in charge. There are a lot of service commitments that change. You can believe what you want. There, there's a lot, there's a lot of freedom in, in that. And what you're describing is, is actually something I experienced as well. Um, and <laughs> I thought you uh-huh, did. <laughs> yeah, I was laughing. I was laughing, literally picturing the people saying to me, like, you're about to get drunk. And you're like, okay, sure. How am I going to get drunk? I'm in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous 12 step programs in general and what you're talking about are not the same thing, but they, the, the program that you are discussing uses 12 step kind of foundations. Is that kind of, yeah, they use a 12 step base. They change some of theirs to apply for, to make it more, um, applicable to the younger population, mm-hmm. but we don't work the, we didn't work the steps really quickly or anything okay. like that. I think I worked them over a course of three years. Oh, wow. They really focused on enthusiastic sobriety. Um, how can you have more fun using yeah. than you did when you were, uh, or how can you have more fun sober than you did yeah. when you were getting Which high? Which is so and important in the adolescence. It's so important. I, it's, I, I, and we did that too. I think, I, I think 
I think the same people were involved in our treatment centers. But, you know, that for me was a very positive, despite the negatives, I was, I was in the same boat with you where it was a very positive experience to learn that I could have fun sober. And had that not been forced upon me, I would not have done it. Right. 100%. And I still live my life Mm -hmm. in that way. Like, it's still like, if I am, if, if I am not enjoying what I'm doing at a, at a cellular level, I need to shift course immediately right? because, and not, and it's not the fear base. Like I'm going to go use totally, today. totally it's not that it's, it's, I'm going to have anxiety. I'm going to have some depression. I'm going to maybe codependently start having these shame experiences, you know, now do that for long enough, then yes, maybe the thought to drink would come in, but it looks a little bit different, but I have to live my life. Yes. I a hundred percent agree with you. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. And so slowly but surely, I started to have a functioning life, you know, um, within some aspects, like, I mean, cleaning my car was an undertaking, even at the age of like 25, I didn't, I did like trash in my car. And so I would have oftentimes my sponsors. I mean, when I left that program, real honestly, when I left that program and had to really live in my authentic self, not what I thought they wanted me to be. It got scary because I didn't have everybody being like enthusiastic Friday. And I want to say this, everyone's like, get out of yourself, get out of yourself, get out of yourself. And it drives me insane when I hear people like say that to people in meetings, like we don't use people to get out of ourselves. We use people and give to people because we are whole. And then we find ourselves within that relationship. Right. So we get, we have a, we're giving from a place of wholeness. Right. Right. Because I got told like all, like all my early sobriety, like, Oh, go get out of yourself. Go call somebody in need. And I'm like, wait, when are we going to honor this? Right. Like what, can we hold space for this first? You know, like, can I be whole first and then be able to go to someone with wholeness instead. So, and I just want to say that because it ties into being very confused when I had my child, right? Mm. Because I mar- I did get married. Uh, I married the, the man that I met in um, that young people's program and he worked for them as well in Missouri. And we moved back, we quit and moved back to Arizona together and we got engaged, we got married. And then like um, a year later we had our daughter and I thought I was really confused because I had all these ideas of what I wanted. I really desperately wanted what I didn't have. Right. And so I wanted a marriage and I wanted to stay married and I wanted like four kids mm. and I wanted to be the stay at home present mom mm. who was available and and you know what? I had my daughter and none of that happened. I was really depressed. I lost my sense of identity. Mm-hmm. 
pretty quickly. Um, I've always been really, uh, free spirited. Like even, even when I got sober, I'd be like, ah, beach trip to California. When right now let's go, you know, let's Mm -hmm. go to Mexico. When right now let's go. You know, I was like road trip girl. I've always been, there was some, a lot of positives that came out of moving a lot. Like I'm, I'm really resourceful, right? right? Really resourceful. I will figure out the, the best way to do something in the most effective way, you know, in the moment I am really good in chaos. Like crisis intervention is like my yeah, jam. Me too. Like yeah. I am good on the fly. Yeah. I am good in chaos. Yeah. I'm good in crises. A few things happened when my daughter was born was that my, I thought, I felt like my life was over because I'm so independent and I'm so on the fly. So I was trying to simultaneously be this like stay at home mom that was very square, you know, and very structured, but I'm not that, you know, and, and I kept shaming mm-hmm. myself for feeling like watching my mother. Yeah. Do you know what I that's mean? What, like that's I'm what I was thinking. I was thinking <laughs> yeah. like, like, like <laughs> this must've been exactly how she felt. Yeah. I was like, Oh my God, I'm my mom. And I desperately was like, I can't be a single mom. Can't be a single mom because my mom was a single mom. And I remember my whole life, her being like, I'm a single mom. I'm a single mom. And then being so resentful at that word, you know? And so I was like, I'm not, that is not going to be me. And so I desperately clung to this. The relationship should have never gone past like three years. And at this point we're at 12, me and my ex-husband got together when we were like 19 in this treatment center or 20 and now I'm 30, right? I had my daughter when I was 29. So a lot of time has passed. I I was 10 years sober when I had her or 11 years sober when I had her. So I guess we were together. Like we divorced, we were, I think we were together a full like 12 by the time we got divorced. So, and I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to do what happened to me. I'm not going to do that to her. I'm not going to do that to her. And I, she was, you know, a a year old. I mean, we had problems from the beginning. I knew I shouldn't have married him from the beginning, but once again, you have to honor both spaces, right? Like I knew that, right. It's a learning lesson, but I also have Scarlett. Right. And so, so like I can honor both and see the purpose in it. And I woke up one day and I've never been like, I've never really been like a jealous or a check, check anything but he kept flying back and forth to California, like a lot. And his interactions with women were, made me feel really uncomfortable all the time. Like I had an alarm and, um, I confronted him about it. He said I had postpartum depression. So I went to the doctor, got my hormones checked and it wasn't that. So, um, and so I checked his Facebook and overnight my life fell apart. And there was a lot of stuff on there that, uh, was pretty, traumatic. And, and, uh, we separated, I, we try to work it out for a very small time period. He at the time had like, I guess he had like 12 years sober at the time. Shortly after that, we got divorced. I had to go through all of that sober. Um, he ended up drinking, uh, he's still drinking. He doesn't think he's alcoholic. Um, I was married to him. So even sober (laughs) was pretty painful for me. So, um, our perceptions are different and that's okay. Um, we co-parent our daughter, daughter now, but that journey was the, that was the beginning of the end of the codependency. I didn't choose to work on it. I have this 
So, right, here's the full circle. Yeah. Uh, here's the lesson. I didn't choose to work on it. I have this one-year-old daughter. I'm getting divorced. Um, I'm completely in a shame spiral constantly. Like my codependency is off the charts. Um, I don't even know. I'm just a pinball. What's, what's like, codependency off the charts look like for you? Um, not in my body. Like, like I was decompensating at everything. Like I would hear a song and fall apart. I would, um, I couldn't drive past the gas station in which I checked his Facebook at, right? Like I, I couldn't go to that corner. It was, it was so bad. Um, I was experiencing shame constantly, like abandonment. It was, but, but what my codependency did was I made a decision. So this, this like knight in shining armor sweeped in and he was like, you know, we'll get through this together, you know? Um, and nobody should have wanted me in that condition. Literally. I was a pile. Of, I, I had a one-year-old daughter. I was an elementary. I had to go back to work. I was an elementary school teacher. I was crying from morning to mm-hmm. night, like morning to night, like not functioning, going to therapy twice a week, not eating, not sleeping. I wasn't even fully divorced yet. And this guy is like, I'm in love with you. And I'm like, Oh, and he was the opposite of, so my ex-husband in my codependency felt more like my dad, like kind of emotionally distant abandoner. I was mm-hmm. alone all the time in that relationship. Um, and then this guy comes in and he's overwhelming, right? Like my mom, right, right, right. right. Completely overwhelming. Like, let's go here. Let's go here. Let's do this. And he was very, and like obsessed and guess what I did. I mean, do you know, can you guess what I did? I mean, I take my, you followed him somewhere. I did. Absolutely. Cause that's the story. You know, I take my two-year-old and I move to New Jersey and I live there. I isolate myself. I cut myself off from all my friends. I'm in a, such an emotionally abusive relationship. What does that look like? Like, cause I think, I don't think other people, I don't think a lot of people realize what emotional abuse is or looks like. Oh my gosh. What it looks like is my reality was questioned constantly. It looks like he didn't want me to talk to people. So I wasn't allowed to talk to people, but he would go through my phone Mm -hmm. and then he would say like, he would be like, Oh, you did talk to somebody for four minutes. So then he would put a timer down and make me replay the verbal conversation. And then if it didn't make four minutes, he would uh, like start badgering me about it. And I'm such a liar. And then I started lying about things because I was like terrified to even talk about it. But then he would find out I was lying. Cause I think, I think there was like some sort of tracking on my phone or maybe like he mirrored something to the iPad or the Apple TV because I would have conversations with people. And like an hour later, he'd be like, when was the last time you talked to Mary? I'm just throwing out a name. And I would be like, I haven't talked to that person in months. And he was like, hmm, interesting. And then I could start to feel it. Right. And then, then it would start to, it was like, comes in his waves. Yeah. And then I was always in trouble. Like he, he did an intervention on me and I needed uh, pathological lying treatment. So he presented me with a treatment program to go to. And he was really worried about me because of my pathological lying, because I wasn't reporting to him. Right. All my conversations, not with males, like all females, like, like, the abuse was like insidious was, Oh yeah. And there was days he would lay in bed, like cry. And he'd be like, look what you're doing to me. You know? And I would be like, I don't, and I have Scarlett. I don't remember that. I don't remember her eating. I know she ate, she was fine. She was in daycare from like 6am to like 6pm because I was constantly managing like his emotions and how the day was going to go. Um, and it was, it was nonstop. I was on, 
Um, I was on all these service commitments. I had to come off all these service commitments because I was, I was always affecting him. Like this is affecting me. This is affecting me. It was so bad. And my daughter, I put her through exactly what my mom did. And luckily she was two. Like she doesn't remember anything, but I do know this. I had a moment of clarity. I don't remember. I like, it was a coat of blackout. Like I will like be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Or I said that that one time, like it was worse than any drug I have ever done. It was the most painful detox I have ever had to experience. Mm -hmm. It was the precursor to all of my alcoholism. That moment when I was in the woods with those Wiccan, the, we were smoking weed and drinking. It was, it was the moment before that. Do you know what I mean? And, and I was at a turning point and I couldn't leave. Like I physically couldn't leave. I yeah. called my mom, me and my mom got really closer in this time. And I called her. I'm like, mom, I need to go to treatment. I cannot yep. leave. Like I'm calling her every day crying. Like, please put me in somewhere. I cannot leave. Like I'm going to die. I was suicidal. I called the suicide hotline multiple times. I was hiding knives around my house. I cut on myself twice. And that if you know me and you see me here today and you see me in the past, that's not my personality. Right. I had been so disconnected from self and authenticity that I was, I was literally falling apart. Um, I was so far out of my body. Like I was so disconnected and so popped out that like I was trying to desperately get back in. And so it just escalated, escalated. And like he would require every time I talked to somebody, I would have to write an email to him and put the dialogue, like write out everything that I said in each conversation. Um, and then he would like call people to try to figure out if that was true in a very sneaky manipulative way. It was like, I was terrified all the time. It was so dark. And so all I know, I had another moment of clarity in my codependency and it was with a two-year-old child and, um, I'm upstairs Yeah. And my daughter is like screaming downstairs and I'm like, I come out down the stairs and I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, he goes, she, she won't give me a hug. And I was like, well, she doesn't want to hug you. And he was like, well, she needs to give me a hug. And I'm like, no, she doesn't. And he goes, I don't want to teach her. It's okay to play games with men at an early age. And I was like, I'm like, he thinks saying no is playing a game. I have no voice, like zero voice. And I had a moment of clarity. I needed to leave. I called my ex-husband. And at the time we were, we were, we were on decent terms. And I called him immediately and I said, you need to come get her. And he was like, when I said now, and he said, okay. So he got on a plane, came, got her the next day, turned around, flew directly back home to Arizona with her. I stayed out there fantasizing about this. I even contemplated like never going back to Arizona, just dying in this relationship. Yeah. You know what I mean? Gallivanting around the world, being swept off my feet, then beaten down, swept off my feet and beaten down. Like it was almost better to just maybe do that forever than experience and the go pain. through the pain. Yep. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like we gallivanted around New York City, spent like $600 in two hours, went to all these amazing shows, went and ate this amazing dinner, like swept off my feet. We went canoeing down this amazing river and, and we parked around the, like down Times Square, we parked around a corner and it got really silent. And he was like, um, did you talk to somebody earlier today? And I was like, this is never going to change. Like, I cannot do this. Like it's, it's, I cannot do this, you know, like you're going to sweep me off my feet to beat me down later for something I shouldn't even have to answer to. Like it doesn't even make sense. 
So he's yelling at me and I'm just, I bought, I, I bought a ticket for six hours later. I drove, I went to the airport and I had to, I didn't have any friends left because I had isolated myself and like cut everybody off. And I had to call my ex-in-laws that I was really angry at. And they picked me up from the airport and it was a mess. It was like hysterical. I just felt like my tail was between my legs and they were so kind. They bought me a house to live in and, and like Nicole saved my life and not in like a codependent way, but like she held the space, you know, for, it took three years to stop thinking every day. I tell myself every day. Cause I was like, felt so tied to him. Yeah. Like yeah. if it didn't work out, then it was all in vain. And now I have to still experience like my ex-husband's pain, you know, and it was really hard to go through sober, you know, and it wasn't necessarily the steps that fixed it. The step work and the service work that I did in the beginning was just the savings account to buy me some time totally. to get through this period. Totally. You know, yes, I do. And, and Nicole picked up the phone seven to 10 times a day. And you know, at one point I bought a plane ticket in the middle of the night at like two in the morning for $900 to New Jersey. Um, and Nicole was like, you're not going. I'm like, I'm going. He blocked me, you know? And I mean, like, I'm still in it, yeah. you know, like a year oh, later, yeah. like oh, not yeah. really, I think it was like six months. How did you get to the founders of CODA and that piece of your recovery? So at the time, um, I was on the ICIPA, um, International Conference of Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous host committee at the time. So um, we had bid for like nine years and then we got the host committee. When we were hosting the conference, I was a co-chair of the host committee. The conference was coming, um, I think, July and six months into being on the host committee was also six months I had been on the, in that relationship. He was also the host committee. He was on the host committee as well. And he just started the thing again. Like, who are you talking to? What are you telling the people on the host committee? You know, he had a lot of paranoia. He didn't want people. No, this is before. So this is how I found Ken and Mary Richardson. So ironically, or ironically, he wanted me, and this is my codependency. He asked me, not directly, but he asked me to step off of the host committee and just work on the relationship. I did. (laughs) And we actually went to counseling with Ken together. We had only been together for like six months. I mean, that's like red flag central. And I'm, I'm such like a green flag. I'm going to paint every red flag green until it's like the ship is just sinking hard because I don't want to be in my body. I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel abandoned. I don't want to feel disconnected. I don't want to feel sadness or not considered or, you know, and in the interim, like I'm not considering myself the entire way. So I step off the host committee, which I was, I mean, I was so resentful at this point because there was times where I was like standing on the stage, like alone, not really alone, but like there was like two other people and we're like bidding. Right. I was like this vigilante to just definitely get icky paw. Um, and then here I am, I'm trading everything in for this guy everything in slowly one at a time. We went to go see Ken. Um, and Ken in counseling saw what happened. He saw me collapse. He saw me like fold into myself. Um, he saw the dysfunction. He saw, he saw everything. And he was like, this is not good. This guy is not well. We left there 
oh, it was blatantly obvious because he confronted him, he exploded and it got, it got bad. And he was like, look, she's terrified of you. And he was just, you know, she talks to her friends, you know, she wants an intimate relationship, you know, but she talks to her sponsor. I mean, it was, it was just, you couldn't have both. I couldn't have me and him, like both things couldn't be exist. So, right. So the story, my whole thing is how my whole life is like, how can both exist? Right. And I keep getting these scenarios where like I, and this other person cannot exist, or I can't feel poorly about something and joy, or I can't experience things simultaneously. It's either like I'm out, I need to abandon this, or I'm idealizing it. This is the best thing ever. And so that planted the seed because when I came back, I was like, I need to call Ken. He saw it. He's the only one that saw it because I've been isolated. He will help me. So I called him and he was full and he said, see my wife, Mary. So that's how I got to Mary. And I saw her for two years and I learned, I was like a sponge, everything about codependency, like be in your body. This is a shame spiral. Like I'm reacting like a 10. The situation is a four. How do I come back down? How do I, you know, she taught me all the skills on how to do that, how to stay in my body, how to get through it. I can genuinely say in the last, I've been back for six years now. I was single when I got out of that relationship. I was single for like five years, like nothing. Like people would come to me and be like, hi, Michelle. And I'd be like, don't touch me. Don't stay away. I was like, so like, don't validate me. Cause I was like everything that I feel perceptionally that I need from others. I need to learn to give it to myself. Even if they have the ability to do that, I still need to know that I can do it for myself. I woke up every day at four 30 in the morning. I hiked up this mountain in the middle of Phoenix called Camelback every single morning. I cried and I hiked. And after that, I went to yoga and I didn't practice yoga. I laid there on my mat and I cried the entire class. I left there and I would go to work and I taught elementary school at the time. After that, I would jump on. I, when I was in New Jersey, I couldn't like talk to my friends or go to meetings. So I did phone meetings all the time in New Jersey and they saved my life. And so when I came back, I would like, I would go to, even on my lunch break, I would be teaching elementary school sorry, Mesa public schools, but I would be like teaching elementary school with my headset in listening to a meeting. Cause I was like, so chaotic. I was like, Oh my God, listening to a meeting constantly. I was, I had speaker tapes on constantly. I was trying to override the system and just do everything in my power to stay in my body. Right. Some things work. Some things didn't, some things I still do today. Some things I don't, but I was willing. I was like, I have to get to the other side. Like this is never going to end. Like I have to do this. I have to experience the depth of pain inside my soul. I, and maybe it won't be healed. Maybe it still comes up. Maybe I still get a little codependent sometimes, but I have to know I have to get to the other side. And I will say in the last five years, I was totally single. I did not seek out validation in any form. People would be like, just go on a date. And I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I, I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent or start to idealize something and start to get into that cycle. You know what I mean? Because it feels good. Like, and, and that's when I was like, Oh my gosh, like I started to experience like this pain, this sadness, but like joy at the same time. And it's, I started to feel myself like whatever broke, whatever thing that like literally shattered at some point in my life, it started to like start to come back together, you know, but not in a way that I was like broken and now I'm fixed. Like I started to be able to how to incorporate it. You know what I mean? Like it started to come into this space of 
Like it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't shame that I was running from. It was like what I started to share. And I started to, and, and me and my mom at before this point, we were really, we were like in a good space, but I was like really broken. I was kind of always a little bit of a mess. And then I realized I started to have, and we were okay. Like when I first got sober, we would do okay, but she started this whole other family. And I always felt on the outside. I've never been connected to my stepdad. Then moving forward, you know, when I was in New Jersey, I really needed her. I begged her to put me in treatment. We were really close at the time, but I was super dark and toxic. Like, and then I started to realize I started to like interact with my mom. The more I got in my body and started to fuse these things back together, I was like, Hmm, I really believe every experience that you've had puts you in a position to be able to experience it so you can heal. So the relationship with the last man that I, the, the, the New Jersey person, when I would start to talk to my mom, it started to create that same sensation. And I was like, this is familiar. This is familiar. I felt that with him and I cannot go down this road. I can't go down this like caretaking, feeling responsible, not considered. It felt, it felt very similar. And then I was like, oh my God, I needed to experience him so I could have the strength to go through this with her. Do you know what I mean? And then in return, not do this with my daughter. Because when I saw him hug her and not let go, I was like, that was me at three. Do you know what I mean? And my mom didn't leave, you know, she kept chasing. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I have to consider her. And so, and I'm a single mom, you know, at the time, my worst fears came true. My worst fears came true. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I was a single mom. I was broke. I was teaching first grade. I was crying in yoga classes constantly. I'm like in therapy with two different therapists trying to help me, you know, and I was really resentful at therapy because my mom was a therapist and I started to feel those sensations with my mom. And, and so I started and she, once again, oversteps the boundaries who, you know, she does a little bit of the, who are you talking to? And I was like, not shut it down. You know what I mean? And I've, it's been really painful, but I've had to set up boundaries. Um, we don't talk regularly. I did go over there for Christmas, but I have so much anxiety and I feel so much pressure around that relationship until I can show up consistently who I am. I can't participate it in the way that she wants me to. I feel sad about that. Um, but I, I have to honor what I know is true. And for me right now, I'm still not in the place that I'm capable of engaging in intensity. She's really intense. And so I, I'm really intense in a lot of ways and, and, and it comes out differently. And so I had to put a boundaries and I cut her off for time periods and it's been really painful for her. And it's been painful for me that I've caused that. But what I learned early on in recovery wasn't working. You know what I mean? Like you don't keep showing up for something that isn't serving you, you know, and you don't just be of service and just constantly try to find your part. It worked for a time period. And CODA was all about, I experienced this form of shame. And oftentimes you take things on. So what happens is when I started to do the work with Nicole, I started to give people back. So what happens is in codependency, you take everything on. So then you suffer other people's consequences because you're carrying it. So in CODA, in the work in codependency, you emotionally and mentally and spiritually, an inventory is giving people back their stuff that doesn't belong to you, not going and owning something that has nothing to do with you. It's giving, it's finding like, how can you move forward? And who do you need to give back their own stuff? I carried a lot of weight 
um, for moving around, for my stepdad not having a relationship with me, for my dad not having, and my mom's, oh, you need to go to counseling about your dad. And I'm like, I feel like you need to go to counseling about my dad. That's what I finally told her like <laughs> six months ago. I was like, I, you know, you have a relationship with him. I think you need to go back and heal that because I'm doing this over here, you know, right now. And so I started to put these pieces back into place through working through the steps in codependency, but also in conjunction with, um, I had a therapist for a while after my divorce, I continued to see her. Um, and then I also continued to see Mary Richardson and I started to connect like, like my whole theme as a child, like, like I was not considered, do you know what I mean? So I find these relationships where I'm not considered, and I continually do those over and over and over. Now, early on when I got sober, I was definitely considered my ex-in-laws have like really considered me a lot. There was points with my ex-husband. So it just never, I never fully moved through it until this mall, until this time period when the New Jersey situation happened. And then I came back. Um, and it was, I'm so grateful. Like I'm, I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about relationships. I learned so much about being a mother, being present, being available, being unavailable. I learned how to move through things, not gracefully and not being okay. I learned how to ask for help in a different way. And cause I always had this like learned helplessness thing. And slowly I started to like empower myself and through this journey of working in codependence anonymous and working with Mary and Nicole, like I started to find this aliveness. Like I went to yoga teacher training, you know, and everybody, all my, you know, everybody in 12 step groups, they, I won this photo contest for this pose. Like I posted this pose and I won this photo, but everybody in recovery, like voted for me and they shared it and they sent it out on email threads. And I won like across the world. And I got this like yoga teacher training in Thailand and, and I went to Thailand for two months. And, and then after that experience, I like opened up a yoga studio, you know? And so I own my own yoga studio and, and I'm still teaching elementary school. And then I start like, so in this, I don't know exactly when it happened, but I do know that at some point I really started to enjoy being with myself. Like at yeah. some point I was like, I really like my relationship with myself. Mm-hmm. Like I really like spending time with myself. I really, I was going hiking every day by myself. I'm like doing yoga every day by myself. I'm doing a lot of things that ground me that in the past I was so focused on meeting other people's needs that I didn't even explore these options. And, and then I go to Thailand and I fall in love with Thailand. And I realize like, I want like my daughter to experience these things, you know, like I want her, I want her to be brave, you know, like I want her to, I want her, she saw me cry a lot, you know, and then I want her to see how you can be resilient and pick yourself back up and, uh, be a better version of yourself. And so we started on the summer as in the summers, we would pick a continent. And since I taught elementary school, I would like, I Ubered and I was teaching yoga and I was working front desk at a yoga studio and I was teaching elementary school. And then I would save all this money. And then like in the summers, we'd pick a continent and like, just go for two months and like backpack it. And, you know, she's been all over Europe, um, people in recovery, 
we've stayed at people's homes in recovery that we've known all across the world from places like Ikipa from those conferences and from mm-hmm. um, different, we used to do, my ex-father-in-law is kind of like a circuit speaker. So we went all over Europe and did, he would speak at conferences all over. So when I was married, we would do those things, but I still had those connections and those relationships yeah. So we would go, me and her just backpack through Europe and she's been all through Asia. I mean, she's like swam with sharks in Thailand. She's bathed elephants in Chiang Mai. I mean, she's been, she's ran on the great wall of China. Uh, she's been to South America, Panama. Uh, and I started realizing like, I just want to experience, I want to spend quality time with her. And I want, I want to experience life with her. Do you know what I mean? Like I want her to be considered. I want her even, you know, even some of the times like she was getting really tired and we would do like in Barcelona, we would like alternate We'd do fun city park, then museum, then fun city park. And then we got to Paris and, um, she was kind of bored. So we like took the train we went to Disneyland Paris and, you know, we've done the most amazing things. Um, not because I have any money, uh, but because it was really important for me to take the time and just spend it with her. I wanted her to know that she was like considered and super important. And, um, I wanted to spend time with her and I wanted to share with her because what I was realizing was that, you know, I love traveling and I started doing all this stuff by myself. Like I would go to Argentina for a week or, you know, show up in Singapore for a week or do all these things. And then I was like, I kind of, I want her to know, like, I want her with me, you know, yeah, like yeah. I want, cause I never felt like a part of with my mom. And so my daughter's been all over the world. I mean, she found, she found a puppy in Thailand. I always talk about this cause it was so cute. She found a p- puppy in Thailand and he wouldn't leave us alone for like two months. We were on this tiny Island and he would follow us everywhere to the pool and when we'd ride away on our motorcycle and he, the guard gate would have to grab him. And she was just like, can we bring him home? And I was like, let's try. So it's, and I say this because like, she loves this dog. Like you should see them. They're like, they're like the, like the closest thing to like soulmates. And she's like in love with this dog. And I was just like, I remember like, she's going to think about him every day for the rest of her life. If we don't bring him home, you know, like, and I know that sounds like, I don't know why I'm crying over this, but like, so we brought him home. I found a rescue. I don't know how I did it, but like, I found this rescue and he, he's been here three years now, two and a half. And he's the best dog I've ever had in my life. He's like, the best he's the best and they are he's obsessed with her they're still like soulmates and as a result of that moment like now she she was on the news a few weeks or a few months ago because she every few months she hosts these huge lemonade stands and we get like everybody in recovery to come out and we get the news teams to come out because my ex-father-in-law sponsors some people that works for the news stations and and the yoga studio participates that I own and this big community comes out and she raises money for the rescue that like that does all this work in Thailand do you know what I mean and so like I've been able to nurture, not because I'm like this great mom, because I've experienced pain, right? These things within her, um, it's allowed me to be present enough with my own pain to help maybe get her to a place of using that momentum as self-esteem instead of stifling it. And it's only because I've been able to be in these scenarios and put myself in 
these scenarios. And it's been such a gift to see her take some of the stuff and like run with it on her own. And, and yeah, it's been great. And it was for us five years. I was alone, just alone for five years. And Nicole would always be like, Oh, when are you going to get in a relationship? When are you going to date someone? I'm like, it's not for, I like, I've never done a dating app. I don't, I got in a relationship before cell phones, you know, honestly, with my ex-husband. So then when I came back in the dating scene, people were like Tinder. I was like, ah, I don't even know what that is. I don't, I don't know how to operate in this world. And dating to me was so like, I'm good in like a relationship after six months, but the whole dating process is absolutely terrible for me. Like I, (laughs) I don't wish it on anybody. It's It's absolutely horrible. And so, so I was single for five, um, like about five years. And in this time period, I, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm like traveling, I'm all over the place. And, and I start experiencing life, like these things that I'm scared of. And so one of the things when I was in this enthusiastic sobriety group, they're like, don't go to concerts. You're going to, you know, you're going to get high if you go to them. Like they're so dangerous. And, you know, you're definitely going to relapse if you, you can't. So we couldn't go to concerts. We couldn't, there's a right. lot of things like that we couldn't wow. do very fear-based. And so for a long time, I was like, Oh my God, I can't go to concerts. I'm so scared. I'm going to get drunk. So anyways, in this time period, when I'm figuring myself out, I like go, I start going to like Coachella. Uh, I have a really good uh, friend of mine and, um, she calls me and she's like, we have to go. So we go to Coachella and we're kind of both like, we're kind of both a mess. My ex-husband was there. I saw him bouncing around, you know, and just like, this is too much. This is too much. Her ex-boyfriend was there. We're like, this is too much. And I was like, I think they have meetings here. Let's go to a meeting. So we go to the meeting and there's these, there's these two guys there and they're super, they're from California and they're super kind. And they're like, Hey, are you guys here by yourselves? And I was like, yeah, are you? And, and they were like, yeah. And they were from California and they were like in our same age group. And, and ironically the LA, I think the LA times was, they were sitting in the meeting that we were in and they did an article at for sober cella, the sober meetings. So like our quotes are in this newspaper article oh, from funny. us sharing in the meeting, like they named us like Linda and Janet or something. So then the rest of the weekend, we hang out with these two guys, but we're just friends. Like there's no, there's nothing. And then I, me and one of the guys, we just always kind of, actually I'm friends with both of them still, but me and one of the guys, we always like stayed in contact. We had very similar interests, but he had, I mean, he had like a year and a half at the time and I had like 15 years. So in my head, I'm like, that's definitely a newcomer. (laughs) Definitely a red flag. So we always remain friends. And then finally, like a year, when was that? 2018, like May of 2018. And I ended up going out to California and asking him, Hey, do you want to hang out? Yada, yada, yada. Can I stay with you? So I ended up staying with him. And like, I mean, we've spent every weekend, every other weekend together since. And, and it's really, it's really hard to explain this part because I was so never going to be in a relationship ever again. Like I was so at peace with me. I wasn't looking for anybody. I literally was like, Hey, I just want to go to California for Memorial day and I can hang out with him. He'll go hiking. We can like, and, and like go to the beach maybe like that will be fun. I wasn't looking for anything. And that was not even my intention. It was just that we were going to go to Coachella again, or life is beautiful or something. We, we had met up every year at these events and nothing, it wasn't, nothing had ever happened. There was nothing, there wasn't even like emotional or sexual intensity or anything like that. It was like, like really normal conversations. And, and it was, 
it's so hard to explain because there's really nothing to say. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it happened so organically. It happened organically, but not only that is I have no frame of reference. Usually I know how to be right. right? Like, right I'm right. like, I know this is familiar. I can experience this. Right. I know how to act. This is normal. You're abandoning me or mm-hmm. you're pressuring me. And right. the second I met him, nothing felt familiar. And because I had no point of reference, I just had to be myself. Right. 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 Like yeah. I just had to be myself. And I was like, I'm really weird. And I have done some really bizarre things, you know, in my recovery and I've, you know, and here's all my baggage, not like that. And it was, it was appropriate because I have diary of the mouth too. So like, I started to learn, like, how much do I really want him to know? You know, like, right. when do I pull back? You know, where do, where do I, where do I stop and then him begin and then vice yeah. versa. And like, do I need to tell him everything in the ne- the first three months or can some things wait later? Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? I do. I didn't or do it, but trauma. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Or like, <laughs> like, is this real or is this past trauma and how do right. I decipher it? And it was so beautiful because it was a long distance relationship for a long time. And we went every other weekend back and forth. And it was so amazing because what I needed was I needed to go there, spend time with him. And then I needed to come home and I needed a process, right? Mm-hmm. To not okay, act out codependently. Yeah. 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 Because if he was like, Hey, you want to hang out tonight? You want to hang out tonight? And then I'm like, totally. In it, right. And totally. I'm idealizing it and I'm not going through the emotions and I'm not seeing like, is this, and he was super slow too. Like he was, you know, like it wasn't, it was so like authentic and we both like genuinely liked hanging out with each other. Like we yeah. genuinely love to be around each other. And like every day, like it's hard to explain. So anyways, we're engaged. So he ended up like, we were were together for like not even a year. Like we knew, like we didn't talk about it, but we knew when we knew, um, he had my daughter, my daughter adores him. And so let's talk about like rewriting the story. My dad did not want to marry him. He didn't want me in his life. My fiance now, Joe, he has a house in New York and we went, I'm also born from born in New York and we were out at the Hamptons and, we walked down on the beach and it was totally ironic. Cause I'm like, here I am in my birth plate, pl- the only place I consider home, yeah. you know, like, and this guy has this house there, but I met him in California, like <laughs> yeah. at Coachella, like what? And we're walking on the beach and like, he proposes to me. Right. And then he turns around and he like proposes to my daughter and he gets her a necklace and like, um, he had, they, she has this like little Tiffany necklace and, um, And I just remember like being like, like it's over. Do you know what I mean? Like the story is done. Like whatever toxicity, like I've rewritten it a little bit, you know, like I'm doing a little bit better than the past generations before me did. Um, And, and so that was this July and he lives here. He moved here in January. He relocated out here and in this process, um, over the last, and like, I mean, he does the dishes, he cooks dinner, like, but he wants to, it's not like, it's really bizarre. Like I actually have like a partner and every day he's like, babe, I'm so proud of you. You know? And I'm like, but he genuinely means it. Anytime I like communicate something, he knows how terrified I am to communicate. And he like holds the space. And then he said this, he was like, just always communicate with me. He goes, even if, even if it's outlandish and doesn't make any sense, I'm never going to make you question your reality. Like I'm never going to yeah. say it's crazy. Yeah. Like 
I have no desire to make you feel that way. And you know what I realized? It's not that like, oh, he's so great or anything like that. He is, but I, I mirror, I'm mirroring the work that I did. Like I did a lot of work. I did a lot of work and I felt really, really deeply about what I never wanted to experience ever again. Yeah. And I'm mirroring that. I don't have a point of reference, right? I've never like system has no idea what's happening, but I keep getting these reinforcements. But it will, like it will be, it will, it has, or it will become the new normal and the new set point. And when that happens, it just, it elevates that standard to then that next place. Yeah. And I did honestly, through all the codependency work, I didn't believe that that was possible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I, I, I believed a lot of things was possible, but I did not believe that was. And it's amazing. It's not, it's not intense. It's not, um, there's no roller coaster. Yeah. There's no roller coaster. There's no, you know, suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's a very different feeling. People used to always be like, you want, like you want to find a relationship or something that makes you want to be better. Like, a, and I really truly feel like, oh my gosh, I really want to be a better version of myself. So therefore I can be more available and present to my partner, to my daughter, to, and it started with my daughter. First it started with myself, then my daughter. And now I'm wanting to do that with somebody who wants to do that with me. Like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. So we're going to get married soon. That's awesome. Exciting. You know, what are, like, if you had to take if you, or when you talk to people who are coming into sobriety, who are in those emotionally abusive, which is, I think, more confusing than the physically emotionally abusive relationships in sobriety. What are some of the, um, like, where do, where do you think people should go? What are some of the things like, where do they start? How do they reach out? I think that they need to find somebody. There's a couple things, uh, a therapist for sure. Um, therapists can really help navigate those, those type of relationships. Um, sometimes when they're really, really early in sobriety, they just need to talk about it because sometimes it's too much too quick to remove right. all of it. That's um, huge. Yeah. Yeah. Because oftentimes, like we know we it's founded in trauma. Like you're in that relationship because for me, at least it felt familiar. So I've experienced that before. And to pull off that bandaid, sometimes you just need to hold the space of the possibility that it's okay to leave. Like when you're ready, I am here. Yeah. Like don't push, just Mm -hmm. say, Hey, listen, when you're ready. Mm -hmm. And you know, like there was times where Nicole really thought I was going back. Like she never shamed me and she never not held the space. She was like, okay, if we got to do this, we got to do this, you know, like, or go do it and then call me back. Find your people and find the people who, I mean, I think that's kind of the overarching story, which is find your people, find the people who get it and, and keep coming until whatever it is, therapy, church, you know, whatever you find, keep going until you find the person who has your story because they're out there and they can help you like do what the winners do and you'll get what the winners get. Yeah. And I think you have to really keep seeking because that's the common theme for also with my recovery is I never stopped. Like I never, I never stopped. I was like, this can't be it. Like this can't be good enough because this is not enjoyable because I feel things so deeply. I either need to like keep doing it or I need to get out immediately, Right, which is, it's also, it's a blessing and a curse. So 
I think that they have to find somebody that relates and they, that can hold their hand or at least like carry them until they're ready. Well, I think you're an amazing, amazing woman with so much to give others and such an experience of being able to reshape the generational trauma and the, and the patterns that come into play, even when we don't want them to, you know, mm-hmm. it's such a great example of like, I don't want to become my mom. I don't want to become, I don't want to live my child. I don't want to give my child my childhood. And then you see yourself doing it. And how do you make those changes and coming out the other side and really having to walk through the pain from start to finish, but coming out the other side. It's really, you're just really incredible. I'm so grateful that you were able to come here today and and talk to us. Yeah, I'm really grateful. I'm really, I mean, the experience, just being able to share and really come out with a little bit of clarity. It's different um, when you try to go to a meeting and share about it. It's hard to put into words kind of what has, what's transpired. Like I get to... I work with people in recovery. Again, I don't teach elementary school anymore. Um, that wasn't a really, I was able to come because I worked in that, the treatment world. And then I was able to come back into treatment in a completely different way now, um, yeah. in a way that nurtures the work that I've done and what I truly believe in. And that has, that took a long road to get there. Yeah. Um, I kept working for these people and there were just not, aligning with my spirit at all. Um, and so I've been able to come into the treatment industry in a completely different way, which has been such a blessing, such a blessing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, That can, it, it, that can be a hard, that comes with all its own complications and, you know, definitions of treatment and, and different, you know, it's like anything else when humans are involved, things get messy. Yeah. And I've had to apply a lot of all the codependency work to my job because all the people that I employ are all in recovery, you know, and I have to set up boundaries and there's things there. And I have to, you know, all the people that we work with are all newly sober and that it comes with a whole line of issues and boundaries and working with the families. And it's been such a learning process to be able to put everything that I learned and the relationship that I've formed with myself, like it has changed every area of my life across the board. That's amazing. Well, we're so grateful to have you and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Definitely check in for an update on the wedding and all that. So thanks again. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.